0: If you have a Bibles, uh, take them and turn in them to the book of Genesis. We are nearing the end of our little series on Genesis 1 to 11, and we're concluding our time with Noah. We've been considering Noah for two or three weeks now at this point. Uh, just a reminder that Noah is the 10th from Adam. And we were first introduced to Noah back in Genesis chapter 5 when we realized and learned that his father was Lamech. And Lamech, his father, had great hopes for his son. He said, This one will bring us relief from the agonizing labor of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. Think of great expectations of a father for his son. That's huge. I think what Lamech had in mind was he believed the promise of Genesis 3.15, and he believed that God would send a serpent slayer, and he wondered if his son might be the one who would crush the head of the serpent. We don't hear anything more about Noah until we read, Noah is 500 years old, and he fathered Shem, Ham, and Jacob, Japheth, and Lamech is still waiting for the head of the serpent, to be crushed. We were reminded in the days of Noah that the earth was a wicked place, so much so that God had determined to wipe off the face of the earth man whom he had created. But we read there that Noah had found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That is, Noah, like Enoch, had looked to God in faith. He had trusted in the God of Enoch, he had trusted in the God of Seth, he had trusted in the God of Abraham or of Adam and he had come to realize that God is real and that changed everything for him. By faith Noah had understood that the universe was created by the word of God. And he knew of Abel who by faith had offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. And by this he was approved as a righteous man. He also knew of Enoch, by faith who was Enoch was taken away so that he didn't experience death. And he was not found because God had taken him away. For prior to his transformation, that is his being taken up to heaven, he was approved having pleased God. For without faith, it is impossible to please God. For the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and rewards those who seek him. So too, Noah was a man of faith, and we read of Noah by faith after being warned, or Noah by faith after being warned about what was not yet seen in reverence, he built an ark to deliver his family. And by this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Moses summarizes the character of Noah. This way, he says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries, and Noah walked with God. And we can piece together some of Noah's life, and we have pieced it together because the New Testament writer says Noah was a preacher of righteousness or a herald of righteousness. Some point as he walked with God, he began to proclaim the righteousness of God to those that were around him. He proclaimed the truth about God, and he walked with God, and he walked in obedience with God. His obedience was precise, because over and over again, in the building of the ark, as God commanded him what to do, the, the, uh, Moses tells us again and again, he did all that the Lord had commanded him. He didn't miss a thing. He didn't skip a beat. He did all that the Lord had commanded him. When he disembarked from the ark, he read how the, one of the very first things he did when he got off the ark was that he built an altar. And on that altar, he offered burnt offerings, a generous offering to God. In Genesis nine one to seven, we read that he was blessed and protected by God, and then in Genesis nine eighteen or eight to seventeen, we read how he was the first named in a covenant that God would make with him, his sons, and all humanity and all creation to preserve the earth. He was quite a man in the day and age in which he lived. So we pick up then in Genesis chapter 9 at verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth was dispersed. Now we'll come to this when we deal with chapter 10. But I hope you know that all of us, all humanity, traces its roots back to Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then all of us trace our roots back to Adam. All of humanity comes from those three boys. And we'll look at that when we get to chapter 10. Verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine, and he became drunk. And he lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant, and may God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. One individual that I read in a different context says, The biographer's problem is that he never knows enough. The autobiographer's problem is that he knows too much. But when God writes a story, he knows everything, and he always tells the truth. And so we're confronted with Noah's sin. Sometime later, righteous, rescued Noah, lay naked in his tent, passed out in a drunken stupor. There's no way around this. There's no explaining it away. Sometime later, it had to be sometime later because he would have had to have planted a vineyard. Sometime later, because he would have had to cultivate those vines and then pick the grapes and allow the grapes to ferment. Sometime later, because Canaan was Ham's fourth son, and he's mentioned here as assuming that he was being born. Noah had become a seasoned man of the soil. He knew what wine could do. And so sometime later, he was utterly inebriated. He stripped himself naked and lay passed out on the floor of his tent. Any of you who have read the Bible know the Bible presents the good and the bad of the people of God. There's times at which I'm glad I'm not in the Bible. I don't think I would like God to reveal any of the sins of my life. But God does it for our learning. God does it to remind us of so many different things. And there's something sobering about this reality. The biblical truth of it is that we are sinners. The biblical truth of uh, even saints is though that sin no longer reigns in us, it still resides in us. And we need to be aware of that. The battle of Romans 7 continues until the day that we die. And you need to refresh yourself about what Romans 7 says about the battle of the believer. You go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, and there the writer tells us to abstain from the fleshly lusts which wage war against our soul. We are saved, but we are not yet fully sanctified. And the need to pursue sanctification extends to the moment that we breathe our last breath. Truth is, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we don't have any sin, then we make him a liar and his word is not in us. But sometimes we have a difficult time facing up to the evil and the sin that we find in ourselves. Noah was the last man on earth that we would have thought would have sinned in such a grievous way, but he did, and it's a warning, I believe, to each one of us. We might think of his sin, after all, as a little sin. After all, he just got drunk, and after all, he passed out in his own tent. He was naked in his own tent, and after all, getting drunk is not the worst thing in the world. Although the Bible might beg to differ with you on that, where it warns again and again and again of the sin of drunkenness. But consider the result of the sin of Adam and Eve. I mentioned then, well, it's just a bite of a fruit. No big deal. Well, look at the consequence of the sin of Adam and Eve. The whole universe, all mankind, was plunged into evil and darkness. The issue is not so much the act of the sin as it is the one whom we sin against, which marks the magnitude and the gravity of our sin. And it was not only his drunkenness. I think sometimes we stop at Adam's drunkenness or Noah's drunkenness. That was only part of his sin. The second part of his sin was that he was stripped naked, passed out. In his tent, exposed for any who would see him. It's shameful and it's humiliating. And in all other circumstances, there's no way Noah would have walked around naked. There's no way that Noah would have exposed himself in such a way. Drunkenness and nakedness often go hand in hand. And Noah's sin also opened the door for temptation, which led to sin for another. So one of the things that we are reminded again is that sin is alive and well in the new world. One wrote, the flood did not purge the earth of wickedness. And we can't suppose that such was its purpose. If God had wanted to eradicate evil, he would have had to eradicate the entire human race. But God would not do that. He had created a theater of redemption. He had promised a person of redemption the offspring of Eve, who would one day crush the head of the serpent. I've asked myself, and you need to ask yourself, why is the sin of Noah in the Bible? Of all the sins of any of us, or all the sins in Noah's life, why this particular sin? I don't entirely know, but some of the ways I answered that for myself was it reminds us that we are all sinners in the need of help. It reminds us that we can never let our guard down. It reminds us that we are always in need of grace and mercy, as I read from 1 John. It also, though, reminds us that the battle between the two seeds continues. The battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman continues to this day, this very day. There is a war going on, and we've mentioned that again and again. And it serves also as a reminder to us that no matter how old we get, No matter how mature in the faith, no matter how much we walk with God, that we too can be overtaken by temptation and fall into sin. When all the world was against Noah, he faced scorn and violence straight up. But in his vineyard among his own, who needed no proof of his virtue, he relaxed. I want to leave you with another question that you can just ask yourself throughout the day or the week. Why did Noah let his guard down? What happened? What would would have been the circumstances in his life where all of a sudden he just kind of set aside the need to keep walking with God? Why did Noah let his guard down? So the reality is, is human sin is always close at hand, Sin was alive and well in Noah's day. It's alive and well in our day. I'm reminded, though, of 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such that is common to man. And God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with every temptation will provide a path through it. Also, remember John, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then we have Ham's sin. Ham was the youngest of Noah's three boys. Japheth was the oldest, and Shem is in the middle. There's so much that we don't know about the circumstances of this story, and it's very easy, and I probably will fall into the trap of maybe saying too much about what is going on here. But what we do know is that Ham somehow found his way into his father's tent and saw him naked. And instead of covering up, he told his brothers about it. Again, why is this story in the Bible? Once again, I believe it's there to remind us that this battle between the two seeds continues. It was before the flood, it is after the flood, and it will be so until the day we die. Remember, in Revelations 12, it talks about Satan who went out to make war against the offspring of the woman. Right now, Satan is raging against we who are born again through Jesus Christ, the offspring of the woman. As we know that Out of this will become a delineation between the seed of Canaan and the seed of Shem. Shem, as you know, will be the father eventually of Terah, who is the father of Abraham, who is the father of all those who have faith in Jesus Christ. And Abraham's line leads us all the way to Jesus Christ. So there's a delineation that will take place in this particular instance that we need to sit up and notice. In this very instance, though, we see the seeds of this tension as Ham is much more eager to point out his father's sin and exposure than he is to cover it up. The first thing that he does is he runs outside the tent and he broadcasts what he has seen to his two brothers. He's mocking his father, he's humiliating his father, he is dishonoring his father. When he saw his father naked, I don't want to imply that there's anything more that took place there other than he lingered longer than he should have. He thought things that he should not have thought, and he didn't do what he should have done. Maybe he had been watching his father drink. Maybe he had been encouraging his father to drink. Maybe they had been together drinking and watching one another drink too much. As Habakkuk 2.15 says, woe to him Who makes his neighbors drunk? You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Could it be that Ham deliberately went into his father's tent at some point after noting his father was drunk to make sport of him? Was there something in his head that started to work? How can I use this against my father? How can I use this to humiliate my dad? How can I use this to create division and tension? in our family he certainly dishonored his father by lingering there and so in the process of telling his brothers what he had seen what he really wants to do is turn his brothers against his father what he wants to do is create division within the family proverbs 10:12 says hatred stirs up strife but love covers a multitude of sins Ham was seeking to make matters worse. Ham was seeking to stir up strife in his family. Again, another proverb says, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but whoever repeats a matter separates close friends. Why do we feel the need to broadcast another's sins? And is there a biblical path for dealing with sin? Note that the word love is used in both Proverbs 10 and in Proverbs 17. That love covers a multitude of sins. Now this is not the kind of love, and this doesn't mean that that love uh, means sweeping things under the rug. Nor does this mean that love avoids the difficulty of confrontation when we are aware of another sin. Nor does it mean that love somehow absents itself from the responsibility of discipline. But there is a time and a place in which love covers a multitude of sins. And there is a time and place where exposing and uncovering and declaring and broadcasting another sin creates disharmony and division. Proverbs six nineteen or 16 to 19, begins this way, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. That should cause us to sit up and say, what is it that that God really hates? What is an abomination to him? Because that should be a way in which we guide our lives and direct our lives. We want to be like our Heavenly Father. We want to love the things that he loves and we want to hate the things that he hates. The very last thing on the list of the things that God hates that are abomination to him are those who sow discord among brothers. This is huge for our Heavenly Father, to sow discords among his family. And the same would go even to sow discord among one another in this particular fellowship and body of Christ. 1 Peter 4.8 says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. As I've said, there is a necessity to confess things. There is a necessity to confront sin. But there is a path and there is a way to do that. And it it starts privately and it starts one-on-one. And if it's not dealt with, then it it, it accelerates. But there is a reality also that love should cover sins. We We ought not to rejoice in the sins of another. We ought not to recall the wrongs of another. We ought not to broadcast them to one another. As one wrote, if as a church we ever get to the place where we're running around poking at each other because of our sins, we're shattered. We are not perfect as long as we are in this fallen world and we will sin. What I think should have happened here is Ham should have done what his brothers did. He should have covered his father. He should have forgiven his father. He should have waited until his father sobered up and maybe talked to him in the morning. He should have just kept it between him and his father in this particular circumstances. As the Bible tells us, love forgives and forgives and forgives and forgives. God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. Now we have no idea what Noah's response would have been had Ham entered the tent seen him exposed like that, covered him up, and walked away. What he should have done, though, is just that. And what he should have done, his brothers did. They took a cloak, they placed it over their shoulders, and walking backwards, they covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father naked. What we have here, and I don't know if you've recognized this, I just throw it out to you to to think about it. There is a A likeness between Adam and Noah. It's fascinating to compare their two lives. Adam in the first creation, Noah in the recreation. You might notice that both Adam and Noah were workers of the ground. Both Adam and Noah sinned by eating the fruit of the ground. Both Adam and Noah were exposed in their nakedness. Both Adam and Noah needed to be covered by another. It's fascinating to see the first creation and the second creation or the renewed creation through that light. Shem and Japheth were not sucked into their brother's trap. They didn't revel in their father's sin. They didn't dishonor him. They didn't humiliate him. Rather, they took appropriate steps to keep themselves from sinning and to cover their father's shame. We might say once again that the veracity or the truthfulness of the promise of Genesis 3.15 is in the hands of Shem and Japheth. Then we read in verse 24, when Noah awoke. Notice, it's very clear, there's no mistaking, when Noah awoke from his drinking, the reason that he was passed out because he was drunk, And he was so drunk that he passed out in his tent. And so basically, it says, when Noah sobered up, when Noah came to after his drinking, and he learned what his youngest son had done to him. Fascinating, this learning what had done to him. It's familiar words in in Genesis 3.15. God says, what is this you have done to Adam? In Genesis 4.10, he says, what is this that you have done to your brother Abel? And now here we learn that we read that Noah learned what his youngest son had done to him. We don't know how he learned it. Uh, it's speculation to try and figure it all out. We simply know that he found out what his youngest son had done. And then we have the only words recorded of Noah in all of the Bible. And they make it clear how serious Ham's sin was. Again, we might not be able to put our finger exactly on the sin of Ham, although I think I suggested some of the things that were sinful about it. We can be sure, though, from Noah's cursing of his youngest son that it was serious. Noah's first words were words of cursing, a prophetic word in so many ways. But Noah, notice, he cursed Canaan. Work that through in your head. Why didn't he curse Ham? But he cursed Canaan. He didn't curse the first three sons of Ham. He just cursed the youngest son of Ham. And maybe there's a connection. Ham being the youngest and Canaan being the youngest. He didn't curse the other sons of Ham. Just the youngest, Canaan. It must have been a difficult thing for him to do. I don't think anybody takes any joy in speaking in such ways of any of their children or grandchildren. But maybe, was Canaan present in all this circumstance? Was Canaan part of what went on in the tent? Did Noah discern in Canaan something of his nature, something of his proclivity. The curse doesn't rest on Ham. It rests on Canaan. If you know anything of the Canaanites, the Canaanites will be known because of their extraordinary commitment to sexual sin. Their world was one of exposing nakedness, of uncovering Nakedness. And you can read in Leviticus 18, in particular, 24 times the sexual sins of the Canaanites, how in this way and that way they uncovered the nakedness of another. And Noah is told, or Moses is said to, told to speak to the Israelites and tell them, do not follow the practices of the land of Canaan where I were bringing you to. The Canaanites were a sexually depraved people, the enemy of God's people. And you can follow this battle. Remember this battle between the seeds. And there is a battle between the Canaanites and the people of God, a constant battle, a consistent battle. And loved ones, I believe there is still a battle between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of the woman that wages in a particular area of sexual sin that it still is a battleground. It's in the forefront of these sorts of things. Noah said the result of Canaan's cursing would that they would be the lowest of servants and they would serve both Shem and Japheth. But then there's the blessing. Noah speaks a blessing. But notice it is not Shem who is blessed, but it's the Lord, the God of Shem, who is blessed. And it's his way of really saying um, to the Lord, I bless you, I speak well of you because you have drawn Shem into a relationship with you. The Lord is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. It's the covenant name for the people of God. And so Noah is expressing something of the wonder of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God that he has brought Shem into a relationship with him. And as I said, it's ultimately through the line of Shem that Jesus Christ will come. And not only does he include Shem in the blessing, but he says, and he will enlarge Japheth, and Japheth will find a place of rest or enlargement within the line of Shem. We don't really see this worked out. We see it worked out in bits and pieces throughout the Old Testament, but it's not until we come to the New Testament where we find the full offering of the gospel to all Gentiles, where the gospel is, is proclaimed to every corner of the world, so that Any who would believe in Christ can be brought under or into the tent or the family of Shem, so to speak. Because if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. One man has suggested in this prophecy that we have one of the earliest declarations or prophetic words from the mouth of Noah that there would be this great ingathering into the people of God. That it wouldn't just be one, it would be uh, uh, offered to the whole world, so to speak. That the calling of the Gentiles into the family of God comes from the lips of Noah. This amazing prophetic word from Noah. The gospel is first declared in Genesis 3.15, and you can go back and read them. And then it's declared again when God provided a covering for Adam and Eve. And then it's declared again when God Um, saves and protects Noah and his family on the ark through the judgment of the flood. Noah's words anticipated God's covenant with Abraham. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all in all. Wonderful words of blessing. Blessing. From Noah and then the final thing that you see the rest of the story is in the last few verses 28 and 29 Noah lived another 350 years after the flood that's a long time it would have been amazing to sit down outside a tent and have a meal with Noah and say Noah tell me what have you seen and you hear him describe the world before the flood. Hear him describe the wickedness of the world. Hear him describe the terror of the flood. Hear him describe the wonder of a new creation. Hear him describe the forgiveness of God. Hear him describe what it means to walk with God and talk with God. The stories that we, he would have had. For 350 years after the flood, Noah lived. He died at the age of... 950 years. That's a lot of years. The second oldest man, I guess, on the earth, at least, we know of. But listen carefully to the very last words that are spoken of Noah. Do you see them there in verse 29? And he died. Significant words, first of all, because biblically they take us back to Genesis chapter 5. It's like this now is the connection with Genesis chapter 5. Not only does it connect Noah with the line of Seth, which takes us all the way back to Adam, but it reminds us that Noah too was mortal and that there is a day coming for all of us in which those words will be said of us. And he died. Or and she died. Unless the Lord comes back before that day, it is certain that we all have a date on the calendar in which it will be said of us, and he died, or and she died. And then very clearly the writer of Hebrews said, it is appointed unto a man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. I don't think it's ever a futile thing to consider your death. I don't think it's ever a waste of time to Wonder about that day when you will die. To think about if it will come sooner or later. To think about if it will come quickly or slowly. But think about it, you should. And I say think about it, you must. Because we will all die one day, and we will all then stand before the judgment seat of God. And however you die is how you will stand before God. If you die in your sins... You will stand before God in your sins. If you die in Christ, you will stand before God in Christ. So, the very best thing that you can do as you're thinking about your death is settle out of court. Settle with God before the day that you die when your destiny is sealed. Settle before the day of judgment. That is what this table is about this morning. This table is a table for those who have settled with God before they have died. It's a table of those who have, 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 have thought about the day that they die are aware of the day that they die. And they know that when they die, they will die in Christ because Christ has died for them. Christ has undergone our judgment. Christ has undergone our punishment. Christ has undergone our exclusion from God. All who put their trust in Christ are safe on the day of judgment. This is the ultimate table of truth and reconciliation. It's the ultimate table of the truth of what God says about you and I. It's the ultimate table of the truth about our need of salvation. It's the ultimate table of truth about the need of a Savior. But it's also the ultimate table of reconciliation. Because the one relationship above all relationships that there needs to be reconciliation is between you and God. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, we beseech you, we beg of you, be reconciled to God. Are you reconciled with God this morning? Are you in a right relationship with God this morning? Are you certain that should you die this afternoon when you're doing something, somewhere, anywhere, that you will stand before God in Christ? Or are you taking a chance that you've got another year, or 10 years, or 20 years, or that it doesn't really matter? Why be reconciled with God? Think this through. Why be reconciled with God? We'd be reconciled with God because we have sinned against God, because we have broken God's laws because we have disobeyed God because we have missed the mark because we have thought in our hearts that God does not exist we are reconciled with God because if we are not reconciled with God we will bear the punishment for our rebellion and our sin and our rejection the wages of sin is death well how are you reconciled with God you say how can how can I be reconciled with God You might look at me and say, well, you don't know my sin. You don't know my love of sin. You don't know the depth of my sin. You don't know the extent of my sin. And I don't know the extent of your sin. But I know the extent of the love of God in Christ Jesus. I know the extent of the blood of Jesus Christ. I know the perfection of that blood when it is applied to any sinner, no matter how grave, no matter how great. God is able to reconcile you because his perfect son took your place. This is what the Bible teaches. When you're aware of your sin, when your guilty conscience plagues you, what do you do? You give it to Christ. You put it on Christ. And this is the amazing transaction that takes place. And all who are at this table are going to profess this this morning. They are going to say that what God has done for me is he has taken my sins. Every single one of them, all that I know about, those that have committed with a high hand, those that I have committed accidentally, and those that I have committed because I didn't know what I should do. He's taken all of those sins, and he puts them on Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is that you then don't have to bear the judgment of those sins. You don't have to bear the punishment of those sins. Why? Not because God is unjust, not because God sweeps them under the carpet, but because God takes those sins and he punishes them in Jesus Christ. Jesus died so that you don't have to die. And Jesus' death was a substitutionary death. He takes your place so that you can, in a sense, take his place. And what do I mean by that? Well, God then takes the perfection of Jesus Christ, Perfect obedience. And in a transaction that is like no transaction ever, he takes the perfection of Christ and he puts it upon you. So when God looks at you, when God thinks about you, when God sees you, he sees you through Christ as perfect. This is what Paul says. Be reconciled with God. Settle Out of court, because there's a day coming when each one of us will die. And the day to deal with God is before you die, not after you die. Father in heaven, we come before you today, and sometimes we need to wrestle with the serious things of life. We've wrestled with so many of them in this particular text, but as we come to this table, This table is a beautiful table because it is an illustration reminding us of the significant event of death. And that if we wait till our death to stand before you, we will stand naked, fully exposed. But if before we die, we put our trust in Jesus Christ, we will be clothed without shame and humiliation as we stand before you. Thank you, Father, for the number of people this morning that will come before this table and declare I have settled my account with God before the day of my death. Hallelujah, Jesus is my Savior. I have trusted in him. And Father, I pray for any this morning who have not settled yet with you through Christ. Father, don't let them sleep. Don't let them rest. Take away their peace until they are at peace with you, I pray. In the wonderful name of Jesus, amen.